The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, last, lots of people, excuse me, talk about what to do when paying for college. But this week, we're actually going to be talking about what not to do with my colleague and college finance expert, Shannon Vasconcelos, who incidentally was here last week. And in another repeat of last week, Elise Krantz is back. Uh, last week, she was here. And between the two of us, we devoted a big portion of the show to the Common App, including how to prepare to fill it out and what's new this year. And some of it was, we knew uh, we knew what was going to be new, but we hadn't had a chance to really look at it. Uh, and that's because it didn't actually go live until last Saturday. And actually, I think it went live a couple of hours early and Elise was there. Uh, so the Common App for the Class of 2016 is finally up and running. And um, Elise has spent the past couple of days really digging into it. And so she is here this week to take us through the different sections and offer her tips for thinking about and filling them out. Welcome, Elise. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming back. I think um, one of our colleagues, Ian, posted today on Facebook that he thinks you know more about the Common App than the Common App people know about it themselves. And I don't know how Scott Anderson, who was my guest a couple of weeks ago, who actually works for the Common App, would feel about that. But I tend to agree with Ian. I think you know an incredible amount about this, at least um, from the perspective of how parents and students are thinking about it as they go through the application because you and I talk to them all the time and answer their questions all the time. So we sort of have a really good sense of what those questions are going to be. Uh, so last week, we uh, covered a lot of important points in terms of preparing to fill out the Common App, in terms of what uh, email address to use and some different things like that. So if you are listening today and you didn't hear last week's show, as soon as this show is over, I would strongly recommend that you either go to iTunes and download it for free or go to the Voice America website and or just go to the archives. If you're listening to this now, you're already on the Voice America website. So just go to the archives and listen to last week's show. There's some really great stuff in there. Uh, But today we're going to dig into some of the pieces of the application that I think uh, start to students and parents start to have a lot of questions about. And that starts with the education page. So First, one of the first questions you get asked on the education page is, uh, if I, if you've attended an other school, what are they asking for here? And is this a situation where a student wants to note an elementary school that they attended or a pre-college program they may have done on a college campus? What are they asking for here? Sure. 
So on the education page, there's a lot of opportunity in different places where you are given the opportunity to explain your educational background, the high school you have attended, if you've attended multiple high schools, if you've done a pre-college summer program on a college campus, if you've earned college credit through a college. Um, So there are multiple tabs you have to sort through, and you have to make sure that you're putting the right information on the right tab. So one of the first tabs that students will encounter when they're on that education page, um, the very first one is asking for your current high school or for those students who perhaps have taken a gap year. It's their most recent high school. Um, But after that, there's this other school category that you've mentioned. And this other school really is for students who have transferred high schools. And this doesn't affect most students, but for those who have been to two high schools or perhaps even more, this is where they would fill out the names of their previous high schools, so ninth grade through 12th grade, um, the schools they have attended, and as well as the dates that they attended those different institutions. Okay. So this is not a place for anything other than switching high schools. Exactly. Okay. What about, and I get this question a lot, how do I know... This is what a parent or student asked me. Did I get help from a community-based organization? Uh, And what are they asking about in this particular question? Okay, so this is the third tab on the education page. It's titled Community-Based Organizations, or CBO, um, as as folks call it. A a CBO is a nonprofit organization that provides free services to underserved students um, oftentimes in urban areas or rural areas where they may not be getting the sort of support that other students might have access to. Um, the sort of college-based organizations that are popular that some students are taking advantage of, for example, there's Boys and Girls Club, uh, there's an organization called Prep for Prep, there's Upward Bound, there's literally hundreds of these organizations. So it's For students who are answering yes to the question, I have used a community-based organization to help me, that's who they're talking about. It's those free assistance organizations. So if you have a college counselor, if you have a great guidance counselor, if you're working with somebody here at College Coach, this is not where you're saying yes to that. This is is just for those instances for the nonprofit free college assistance. Gotcha. So, right, listening to this radio show does not equal a community-based organization. So most people or many people are probably going to answer no to that. All right, back to the question about transferring high schools. We already know where that information goes. What about this next question where they ask you about an education interruption? If you have transferred high schools, do students need to report an education interruption there? I wish... There's so many places in the common application where if you answer yes to one question, another question pops up automatically to Mm -hmm. ask for further explanation. And I so wish this tab were part of that that, that technology. Because for students who are selecting, yes, I attended a second high school because I transferred, let's say, after 10th grade, you wish that this would automatically say, yes, I've had an education interruption. But most students don't realize that what they've had when they've transferred high schools or if they've taken time off during their their ninth through 12th grade, whether it was to take a gap year or there was an extended illness, they don't realize that that's technically an education interruption. So for a student who changed high schools, um, for a student 
um, who was ill for an extended period of time, um, for a student who graduated early from high school, let's say they skipped a year and they're graduating early, um, a student, let's say, who didn't graduate high school at all but earned a GED instead. This is considered in the Common App perspective, an education interruption. So back to that transferring question, yes, if you've transferred high schools, you would have to check the box that said, I did or will change secondary schools, and then you will be automatically expected to fill in this text box. A very short little explanation would be required to give some details as to why you went through that progression through different secondary schools. Okay, makes sense. But I agree with you that its placement doesn't necessarily make sense. It should come directly with that question about have you attended any other schools, perhaps next year. It should. And and if you have transferred high schools, colleges want to understand why. Sometimes it's because you you might have been in a bullying situation or maybe because you were seeking additional rigor and you were going from a public school to a private school. Um, There's a host of reasons, financial situations. You were at a public, a private, and you had to go back to a public. And they just want to understand why. They just want a little bit of context there. Exactly. And as we often say, if you if there's going to be a question that an admissions officer is going to have about your application, uh, you want to try and find a way to answer it. And that's a great example of that. All right. What about, and this is another really popular one, what about a pre-college summer program that a student takes part in? Uh, does that count as a college course in the section where they ask about attending any colleges or universities? Right. So the next tab down on that education page on the common application is called colleges and universities. And so they're looking for students who have taken a college or university course beginning in ninth grade. And they're going to ask for the number of colleges you have taken a course at. They're looking for details of that course. Was it taught on campus? Was it taught off campus? Did you earn credit for it? Is a transcript available? And what were the dates of those of those courses? Um, so most students, again, most students aren't answering this with a yes, I have, here are my courses. But for students who have taken and paid for that credit to earn a college credit during the summer or perhaps during the school year, whether it's at their local community college or they went away and they did a, a sleepaway program and they were earning college credit while they were there at that college, this is where they would indicate that. Gotcha. Okay. What about... This next section makes me a little crazy, this one and the one that follows it. And this is around the question of self-reporting things, um, starting with self-reporting, a GPA, and a class rank. And often my students say, I don't know what my GPA is. How do I calculate my GPA? Because my school doesn't do that for me. And do I need to fill this out? And is this what the colleges are going to use? So what's your take on whether or not you should fill this section out? So in the grades section on the common application, there is only one required question, and that is, what is the size of your graduating class approximately? The questions of what is your class rank, what is your GPA, is your GPA weighted or unweighted, those are completely optional. And as you said, for students who don't know what their GPA is or know what their rank is, absolutely, they should leave this blank. Colleges are using the information that is found on the actual transcript to glean this information. They're not really using the self-reported piece at all. And I think sometimes students can make mistakes when they're calculating a GPA or they mistakenly put a class rank that ends up changing. And it's just to be on the safe side, let the official scores or the official 
that officials, those official statistics come from the mm-hmm. actual transcript. Let the experts who are the admissions officers make those determinations instead of a student possibly erring and indicating a wrong piece of data on this, on this form. Yeah, I can't. I would completely agree with this and with your take on it. And and the other message for you to take away as students and parents going through this process is just because they ask the question does not mean that you need to answer it if it is optional. So I know that you can feel like, well, I really should answer it because they're asking it. But the reality is, as Elise said, typically they're going to take this information from the official documentation. The reason why they ask for it on the Common App, well, sometimes that can allow for sometimes quicker processing, but not always. I mean, at Penn, a self-reported GPA did nothing for us. We needed to look at the transcript. We were recalculating a GPA that was pulling out only the academic courses. So it really wasn't helpful. And I, I have to imagine that it's not helpful at many of the different colleges and isn't worth, as you note, the risk of maybe getting it wrong. Um, right. And in some instances, yep. high schools may are, are no longer reporting class rank. They're certainly calculating it for their own purposes, but they don't. It's school policy now to exclude that information on the transcripts. But in some instances, guidance counselors have informed, let's say, the top 10% or the top 20% that they are, in fact, in that upper decile. Um, and so in those instances, if you know for sure and you've received word from your guidance counselor that you fall into that category and you know the information is not going to be on your transcript and you have the okay from your guidance counselor, then it would be perfectly appropriate to self-report in those instances. Sure. And in some cases, perhaps the guidance counselor would disclose that information in the letter of support. So really good Mm -hmm. point and a conversation certainly to have with your guidance counselor about that. What about the section that asks about honors? Some students have honors, some students don't. Does it look bad if you don't have anything to put in that section? Well, this is tricky. I mean, I would say, generally speaking, no, it doesn't look bad. Um, You know, I would say for most colleges, they're not looking to find flaws in your application. It's more they're looking for an opportunity to find something interesting and compelling. So if you have nothing to list, then it's a neutral but if you do have something to include, whether it's National Honor Society or you took a special math competition and you earned an award for that, or even if it was a departmental honors, let's say you earned Best English Student of the Quarter, um, it could be something like that. You know, there's, those honors would certainly be appropriate. I do want to mention, though, that for students who have National Honor Society, note it is National Honor Society without the S. A lot of students put Honors Society, and it's wrong. Not that colleges really care, but I always like to make sure for you. perfect <laughs> on the application, but... Yes, I hear you. And I also think important to stress here, they're really looking for academic honors. So if you won most improved on the field hockey team, this isn't really the place for that. That's going to go in activities as one of the honors you earned as part of that activity that you take part in. All right. What about the testing page where we once again get back to this question about self-reporting? Should you self-report SAT or ACT scores? Oh, this is so tricky. Everything is, the SAT landscape is constantly changing. There is schools left and right who are now no longer even requiring standardized tests. Penn, as we, as you and I have discussed uh, over email, recently changed their policy, which affects the students who are currently applying. So there's, there's lots of changes taking place. So again, similar to that GPA rank section of the application, students should feel comfortable leaving this 
completely blank. Colleges do not use this information to make their official decisions. They're using score reports from either the SAT or ACT agencies to look at those uh, official scores. Um, but if you do want to self-report tests, you should just be aware that it is perfectly legitimate to only self-report your best scores. Even for schools that want to see everything, and there's many of those schools out there, they want to see all two or three score reports that, you've, that you have from the SAT, um, you are allowed, because of the wording that's on the common application, to just indicate your best critical reading and your best math and your best writing, or for the ACT, your best English or best science, etc. So you, you can self-select, you can pick and choose, you just want to be careful that if you are reporting, let's say, two great high scores from your, for your SAT, let's say for your math and your critical reading were from two different tests. You just want to make sure you indicate that this is from two sittings of the SAT and not three sittings of the SAT because you took it three times technically. Just be careful that everything is logical and that it's, it's clear when you're filling it out that um, you're filling it out accurately. Right. I, you know, I would say I advise my students to not self-report because all of the colleges require them to submit official test scores. And I think similar to the GPA, what if you misrepresent by accident one of your scores mm-hmm. or you forget to put the right date in? I have a lot of families who feel a lot of agita around leaving this section blank. And I will say that I do advise them to self-report AP scores. So there is also a section in this um, testing page where you can self-report your AC, your, sorry, your AP, your advanced placement scores. And I leave, I have them leave everything blank except for that. And the reason that I have them self-report their AP scores is because uh, most colleges don't expect you to submit an official score report for your AP tests until after you've accepted and decided to attend and you're trying to, at that point, get credit. Uh, so really, the primary way in which you usually let schools know about your AP scores is simply by reporting them on the application. But those are the only scores that I encourage students to submit through this self-reporting uh, field. Yeah, I think um, that's... I think yep. that makes sense for a lot of students. And, and the one, ex, I guess, additional piece of information is that if you have not yet taken any formal SATs or ACTs, you can indicate that you will be taking it in the future by selecting a future date. And that can be helpful for colleges to know that they don't have official testing because you haven't taken those tests yet. But they'll see on your application that those scores should be forthcoming. Exactly. So they're, they're coming. Or if you are really eager for them to know that you've got new testing on the way because your current testing is perhaps not quite as strong as you're hoping it will ultimately be, it could be good to let them know, hey, by the way, uh, in case you're concerned about where my scores are now, I'm taking it again. And if you wanted to wait and see what those scores are, just be aware that they are going to be coming. So that's another another great point. All right, before we move on to the next section, we're going to go to break. And uh, when we get back from the break, we're going to continue working our way through the Common App, uh, starting with the activities page. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Inside Out is the voice of the inner revolution that is bringing positive change to our planet. Discover the amazing transformations already taking place from faraway lands to right here under our noses. Meet guests who are shaking things up for the better and gain insights and courage to help you become all that you can be. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inside Out, The Inner Revolution airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. Before the break, my guest, Elise Krantz, and I were discussing uh, the testing section of the common application and all of those questions. And now it's time to get into the activities page. And this is a page. So when I work with students, I set out usually when the common app goes live, I ask them to go in, fill out the common app, except for the activities section and the writing section, because we're generally working on the essay. And because I want to make sure that we are on the same page in terms of how they're filling that activities section out. So let's start with uh, your take on the best way for students to list their clubs and activities on on the common application? Sure. So the activities page gives you 10 spaces to fill in your clubs and activities outside organizations. It's, it's really quite broad how you choose to define activities. Um, so it can include summer, it can include school-based, community-based, any of that. Uh, It is best practice to list your most important activities at the top of the list and then work your way down. It does not need to be chronological. Um, And I find it helpful for students to sometimes group their activities as Mm -hmm. well based on areas of interest. So if a student is really into music and she's into the orchestra and she does private lessons and she also volunteers part-time teaching little kids how to play music, then those perhaps could all be grouped near the top, and then perhaps athletics is in a different section in its own section. Um, But that's 
sort of a nice layout would work like that. But I think that just a, a helpful tip in general when filling out this section is that you need to be very clear what the activity is that you're discussing. There are drop-down menus within each space of these 10 different spaces where you can select that, uh, that you are referring to an academic activity or that it is an athletic activity or a musical activity, but it's the responsibility of the student to still spell out what that club is or what that organization is. A lot of times students forget to do that and they'll just put, oh, I was vice president or I was a member. But you need to right. say, you know, I was the member of the statistics club or whatever it happens to be. Right. Exactly. I think that's a great point. And the reason that we ask people or suggest that you list your most important stuff first is because remember that at some schools, these admissions officers are going to be reading maybe as many as 100 files in a day. Now, at the schools that you and I worked at, I don't know about you, but we averaged about 30 a day. And that's still a lot of activities lists to go through. And often you're going to be skimming. And if you don't list the important stuff up front, it may get missed. Um, and you don't want that to happen. So you definitely want to lead to the most important. And the only other thing I would add is if it's an activity that you haven't done since ninth grade or you only did for a couple of years and you no longer do it and it's not all that important, obviously, if you don't do it anymore, typically that means it's not that important, then the place for that is either at the bottom of your list or if you have more than 10 things off your list altogether, right? There's no Uh place for it if you're not doing it anymore. Um, And some students have so many activities, they don't have room to list all 10. Um, And I would encourage those students to try to group similar activities in the same line. So if you have multiple examples of community service, instead of having three lines dedicated to soup kitchen and the library and whatever else it might be, you could just list community service as your activity. And then in the space where it lets you describe that activity, you could then spell out what those three organizations were. Exactly. That could be soup kitchen, library, and the, the third thing. I Totally. I think that's a great idea. And Conversely, if you don't have enough things to fill out the 10 spots, well, that's when you stretch it out, right? Instead of listing Mm -hmm. it all under community service, you list those three things separately. Uh, So sometimes you're going to want to group everything together and make more room, and sometimes you're going to want to stretch it out. Uh, So it looks like you've done maybe a little bit more than you feel you actually have. What about the ever-present resume? Uh, Where can students upload the resume into the Common App? Uh, It used to be the case that the common application format allowed you to upload a a PDF of your resume, and that has now been gone for a couple of years, uh, much to the dismay of many students who craft these beautifully, you know, beautifully (laughs) designed one-page resumes. Um, So it's unfortunately not Or 10-page resumes. (laughs) <laughs> or 10-page, or 10-page. Yes. Um, Not beautifully crafted up- <laughs> if it's 10 pages, but yes, okay. You can't, you can't upload it anymore in the traditional sense. Um, occasionally, colleges on their own in their supplemental section of the common application, they will provide a space for students to upload a document. Sometimes they'll spell out specifically, you can upload your resume here, or they'll say if there's anything else you would like to share with us, and then you could upload it there. But really, those are the only places where a resume is appropriate. It's, there is a section in the writing tab of the common application where students theoretically could cut and paste the, the, the 
the content of their resume, um, but it's, that's not what it's asking for. That's, that's a separate section. So you really just want to use, even though it's not always as beautiful to look at, but the activities page, those 10 lines, fill it out to the best of your ability. Make those little descriptions snappy. You only have 100 characters, including spaces and punctuation to work with. So even when admissions officers are skimming through it, if you provide interesting and, and pithy descriptions, it can help stand out in a sea of I, applications. Exactly. And I think lose complete sentences. Forget about that. Uh, the most important thing is you're conveying the information. And remember that if you played varsity soccer, they know what that is. So you don't have to worry about describing soccer as a game played on a field and there are 11 <laughs> players on each team and people are probably laughing right now, but I've seen students write these really long descriptions about things that the admissions officer already knows. Um, I also think I've seen students do resumes who absolutely don't need them, so they barely have enough activities to complete the 10 s- sections on the Common App, and then they want to do an, a resume on top of that. It's unnecessary. Uh, I think you could use the additional information section to maybe include a few items that you couldn't fit on those 10 lines. But keep in mind that for the most part, the colleges ask for 10 things because they feel like that's enough to give them a sense of what you're doing outside of the classroom. And while it can be very tempting to say, but they can't possibly understand what I'm all about if I don't include reams and reams of extra information, the reality is that they actually can. And the key for you as an applicant is to select the most pertinent information and present it to them in the most easy to understand format possible so that they can really get a picture of who you are and what you might add. Okay. What about the writing page? Uh, we talked about this last week. I talked about it a little bit with Scott Anderson when he was on the show a couple of weeks ago. But this a new thing this year is that not all colleges are requiring an essay. So there are some schools that now accept the Common App that do not require the essay. Should students be submitting the essay even if they don't require it? Right. So this is something I I know we talked about last week as well. Um, And I think that our takeaway was that by all means, submit it, right? If you have a great essay, you've worked on it, other schools require it, it may not be read, but it certainly does not hurt to send it. And the way you'll know if a school that you're applying to requires or does not require that main personal statement, when you're on the writing page, there is a nice little chart now based on the schools that you have already added to your My Colleges list. You'll see either required or not required, and you'll see all of the schools on your list under one of those two categories. Gotcha. Okay, so that's super helpful. And again, we have a few things here that we'll talk about that some of which we're going to gloss over because we actually covered it somewhat in depth last week. So you want to go back and listen to last week's show. What about formatting my essay? This might give some of my students the most agita. I had a mother who just was apoplectic over the fact that the italics that they were trying to use weren't working. And I kept trying to tell her, everybody's essay is going to look similar on the Common App. It is not just happening to this particular essay. So what do you do about formatting? And it looks like it disappears after I save my work. How do I know how it's going to look to the colleges? And it's funny because you think that your words are what's important here, but for so many students, the way that those words appear and, you know, whether it's you're used to handwriting or the, the font you choose to use normally for your 
papers in school, that's part of your personality. And to think that the Common App is stripping that away can be challenging for some students because they think the essay looks blah and boring and typical. And how can it stand out if it's just is a typical font? Um, but that's colleges are find that piece unimportant. They're really looking at at the content of what you're choosing to write about. So when you're cutting and pasting your essay, which you've probably worked on in a word processing document like Word or um, I don't know what Microsoft, uh, the Mac people use, the Macintosh folks, the Apple folks, but they have their own processing system I know. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you're cutting and pasting or you're typing it directly into it, you may try to be using these paragraph indents that usually we all start paragraphs with, but those will not be preserved when you save your common application work. They just aren't. And as much as you might like to see those paragraph indents happening, there's no way, whether you're using tab or you're trying the spacebar five times, it just won't happen. So you just have to relax and let that go. But the paragraphs will be broken up into nice chunks for you so that the admissions officers, their job is a little bit easier. They'll see visually each of your paragraphs broken up. There'll be a space in between them, an empty line. And that's generally how the formatting looks. You will have italics, you will have bold, you will have underlined capabilities, but the rest of it is left out of your hands in terms of size, font, etc. Gotcha. So, yeah, and I just think people don't get so stressed about this. And quite honestly, not only do admissions officers not mind, but back when people used to print stuff out and mail it in, the things people would do just terrible ideas, and this prevents you from doing that. We once had at Penn a student write an essay in a circle, so you literally had to turn the page around and around and around to read it. You know what I don't want to do after reading 20, actually 40 essays, because Penn at the time required two essays for every application? Uh, I don't want to do that, and so I might not actually read it if you make me work that hard, and it's not going to work for you, so the Common App prevents you from making dumb choices like that. All right. Um, last week, we talked about the fact that you can now edit the personal statement unlimited time. So if you're interested about that piece and what we had to say about that, go take a look at it. Similarly, we talked about FERPA and um, whether or not to waive your rights. Uh, you want to check that out from last week. It's a really important conversation. Um, we're not going to rehash it here, but go back and listen to that. Uh, similarly, we talked about what email address you should use and how to link your account to your Naviance account if you have that. So all of that is in last week's show. Another big thing, and we did talk a little bit about some of this stuff, but there's some other stuff now that we want to talk about today, is how do you preview the application before you send it out? Right. So new this year, which we discussed last week, is the individual preview page for each tab that you're on. You can see what the writing page will look like with your essay. You can see what the testing page looks like, all of that. So the six pages of the application now each have their own preview screen, which you can do at any time. It can be complete. It can be completely blank. You can still see a preview. It's nice. But we get a lot of questions at the end of the process when a student wants to see everything start to finish What will an admissions officer see when they're looking at my complete application? The only way to get a full print preview of your entire application is to have every required component of your Common App filled in. There can't be any blanks. So when you're working through the Common Application, you'll see these green check marks appear on the six pages of the application that tell you that the application is complete for those sections. So once the profile, page, family, education, testing, activities, and writing, once those are all 
have that nice green check mark, you can then go to your college's list, select a college. I'm just looking at Boston College now. It's what I have pulled up from, from my Common App screen here. And then you have to make sure that you've completed any required questions for Boston College. You have to make sure you've completed that Recommenders and FERPA page. And then, finally, you can look at that PDF of your application. So everything really needs to be in order before you can even catch a glimpse of what your full app is going to look like. Gotcha. Okay. So we only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to get to probably one of the most important pieces here, and that is uh, the writing requirements section of the dashboard. And the big question of the year is, if the college doesn't require a writing supplement, so there isn't an official writing supplement on that dashboard, does that mean I don't have to write any additional essays? This is so painful for me. I had such high hopes for these changes that the Common App made because there are these beautiful little colored circles. You have the red flag for required and you have the yellow and white flag for optional and then you have this blue arrow for additional details. And you think, okay, it's clear. If I see red, it's required. If I don't see red, it's not required. But that's not the way it works out, unfortunately. Colleges have the ability to put their supplemental essays in various places within the application. It might be in what's called the members questions area, which is a required field that you submit in addition to your full common application, or colleges might put it in what's called the writing supplement section, which is a supplemental application that you submit after your main common application has been submitted. It makes no sense to me, but this is the way the Common App has set it up. So an essay could be in either the member questions area or in the writing supplement area. So I'm looking at Boston University now. Forgive the East Coast bias. This is just what's at the top of my list. And under writing supplements, it's blank. BU shows no writing supplements. But their essay is hidden under member questions. So any student might, looking at this might assume, oh, great, there's nothing under writing supplement. I'm free. I just have that main essay. But it's not. It's under member questions. So you really need to dig and open up every single tab and answer all the questions to make sure that you don't have any additional writing required. Yes, I agree with you. A big boo to this that it's not a little bit clearer because it, you know, it just makes it a little trickier. Okay, very quickly, last question. Uh, when I click on questions under a school's writing supplement, I get a message and it says it's not yet ready for completion. When do those essay, when are those essay prompts going to be ready? Uh, it, they trickle in. It's going to take a few weeks for schools to get their acts together or the Common App to upload that data and have it all together. Um, but there is a handy way for you to find which schools have their uh, supplements up and running. If you go to the Common App Help Center and you go to the, the main page, the support home page, right there you'll see in bold text it says Live Common App Member Schools 8M and N to Z, and if you click on those links, it takes you to a list of all the schools whose supplements have been uploaded and are ready to be worked on. 
Perfect. Elise, thank you so much. To our listeners, we actually, you may have noticed if you've been logging into the Common App or poking around that we actually didn't talk at all about uh, some of the early questions that they asked. The profile page, your the demographics, the language, the family page. There are some great tips for filling those sections out as well. And if you are interested, I strongly recommend uh, that you check out uh, Elise's series of blogs. You can find them at www.getinterview.com to college.com forward slash common app. And all of the stuff that we've talked about today, plus that additional stuff is all going to be in there. Uh, The first blog is already up. The second blog will be up in a couple of days. And the third blog will be up a little uh, while after that. I think we're only looking at three this year. Is that correct, Elise? So far, that's the plan. So far. All right. Well, we may do a fourth if it's if it's necessary, but uh, you're going to be looking at a series there. Uh, after the break, I'm going to announce our final winner of a free 30-minute consult. Uh, thank you to everyone who sent in segment ideas and questions to enter to win. Uh, good luck to those of you who did. And uh, don't go away because we're going to announce that winner in just a minute. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everybody. We just spent two segments on the brand new Common App and tips and tricks for that. So if for some reason you're joining the show right now, you definitely want to listen to the archive when you're done because there's all kinds of great information there. But first, before we get to our next segment, I'm really excited to announce that Pam... And I apologize in advance, Pam. I'm going to do my very best with this name, but I'm just hoping I'm putting the emphasis on the correct syllable. But t- Pam Nithikasem is the final winner of a 30-minute free consult in our listener contest. Pam, Pam, shoot us an email at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We're going to set you up with your free consult. Thank you to everyone who entered and sent us some segment ideas. We got a ton of really great uh, ideas, and we're going to be putting together a listener show sometime in the next couple weeks where we're going to address uh, a handful of those. And we're also going to keep some of them on hand just to think about in terms of uh, future segment ideas. There were some really good ones there. Uh, but before we do that, last week, uh, we talked with Shannon about income-driven loan repayment plans, Shannon Vasconcelos, that is, and this week she's back. And today we're going to be talking all about what not to do when paying for college. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks, and thanks for making time on your Thursday once again. Um, no problem. Feels- no place I'd rather be on a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. It feels a little like Groundhog Day just because we were here last week, same time, talking about not the same thing, though, so that's the good news. I know. <laughs> uh, so a lot of times, it's the first week of August, a lot of the first bills for college are actually due uh, right now, so it's the perfect right. time to be talking about that, uh, but we wanted to kind of touch on what you shouldn't be doing when you're paying for college. Uh, there are lots of, we do them ourselves, talks about what you should be doing, but how about what you shouldn't be doing? And I guess the first question that I have is, uh, when a family is, what, are, what should they be looking out for as soon as they receive that tuition bill? And are there any things that people do that they shouldn't be doing with that? Yeah, so... When we get that first tuition bill, I think everybody's first inclination is look at that big balance at the bottom of the page, and then they want to stick that bill in a drawer and forget that it exists. <laughs> uh, but you should not be doing that. One of the first things I think you should look at is the due date on that bill. <laughs> when people get a, a huge bill, they, they try to pretend that it's not there, and they ignore that due date. Uh, yep. But paying on time is very critical in terms of the college bill. Um, if you don't pay on time, you get late fines. And when we're talking about a college bill, those late fines are nothing to sneeze at. They can often be hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So please pay the bill on time. Uh, the other thing, if you, you pay late, it can stop your kids from being able to register for classes and things like that. It makes the whole process stressful. So please take a look at that due date, pay the bill on time, make sure you're leaving processing time. Uh, if you're going to you know, transfer money from your bank, if you're going to take out a student loan to pay the, the bill, it can take a few weeks for the loan to go through, so just make sure you're, you're being timely about things. Um, the other thing about the bill uh, is definitely check to make sure that that bill looks correct to you, that you're not being charged for something that you shouldn't be charged for. Um, one, uh, one big thing that jumps out at me about the bills is health insurance. Um, most colleges require their students to be insured, and they'll automatically bill you for the school's health insurance. But if your child is covered under your um, employer-sponsored health plan, you don't need the college's health plan. Um, So you need to make sure that you submit paperwork to opt out of it. A lot of people kind of miss that step along the way. They're not paying attention. They get billed for health insurance. They don't even notice. 
uh, and that's probably a couple thousand dollars that you're paying unnecessarily. Um, so that's another big thing to check over the bill. Make sure that you're not paying for anything that you don't need. Right. So don't ignore it and don't pay for something that you don't, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be paying for because you already have it. Okay. Exactly. Great advice. What about 529 college savings plans? Lots of parents use these to save for college. Uh, if you've saved in a 529, now it's time to pay the bill. What kind of mistakes can you make uh, as you're using that money? Yeah, so first of all, I love it when people save for college in a 529. You get a nice tax break from doing that. Um, but you can, there are a couple issues that sometimes people make mistakes with. I would say one is not using your 529 on time. So the deal with the 529s is you get a tax break as long as you use the money for college. If you don't use the money for college, you pay taxes plus a 10% penalty. So it's pretty harsh if you don't use the money for college. And I've seen sometimes people wait to use their 529. They'll, you know, plan on playing. They've got some other money that they're going to pay for freshman year with. They'll use the 529 later, and that's actually kind of smart financially because the more years the money's in the account, um, you know, the more it grows tax-free. So that's a good thing. But if you wait on it too long, you sometimes miss out. I've seen people, you know, their kids drop out of school halfway through freshman year, and they haven't used the 529 yet. And now if they want to get that money back, they have to pay a 10% penalty. So that's one thing I'd, I'd advise uh, parents to to, to not do, to not wait on using your 529 because it's a little bit risky. You might end up getting charged that 10% penalty. So that's one thing to think about. And then actually kind of on the flip side, the other thing to think about with 529s, um, well, you don't want to kind of wait forever to use them, is you might actually want to hold some money back uh, and not kind of pay everything out of your 529 right away. The reason for that is you want to coordinate your withdrawals with any uh, education tax credits that you might be eligible for. Um, the biggest one is called the American Opportunity Credit, and that's for parents who are paying college costs who, who make less than $180,000 a year. That's who qualifies for that credit. Um, and the deal is if you pay $4,000 in college costs out of pocket, you get to claim a $2,500 tax credit, basically kind of reimbursing yourself uh, $2,500 of what you paid for college. So it's basically like getting kind of a free $2,500 scholarship. Um, but a lot of people um, don't realize that they can claim this credit. They kind of ignore it. But the issue with the 529s is that the $4,000 in payments you have to make towards college, they can't be made out of your 529 uh, to qualify for that tax credit. Since you're already getting kind of a tax break on your 529, they don't mm-hmm. let you double dip and get a double tax break. So, you know, even if you've got enough money in your 529 to cover freshman year, say, maybe hold a little bit back for future years and pay at least $4,000 out of pocket so that you can get that free $2,500 tax credit. Uh, a lot of people kind of don't think about how, how those two kind, the tax credit and the 529 interact and they end up losing out on a free 2500 bucks. Um, so that's just something to think about as well with the 529. That, that makes a lot of sense and um, great advice for people to think about. What about for those people who didn't really save for college? Uh, instead, they put their money into their retirement savings. We hear about people paying for college out of their 401k. What do you think about that? Uh, is that a good idea? Is that one, does that fall under the 
what not to do when paying for college? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that it does as a general rule for most people. Uh, Your 401k is supposed to be used for retirement. They will let you withdraw from your 401k to pay for college, but that doesn't mean that you should. Um, first of all, I think you're going to need that money in retirement. There's very few people who have, you know, oversaved for their retirement. And while you may think that you're doing your kid a favor now to kind of pull some money out to pay for their college, uh, they won't be thanking you when they have to support you in your old age. So I really like to keep the 401k kind of sacred. Uh, don't touch it for college. They'll also, they'll also, while they'll let you uh, pay for college out of your 401k, they will charge you a 10% penalty for making an early withdrawal. So it's, it's kind of an expensive way to pay for college. Um, the other thing with the 401k is it's some, you can also take a loan against your 401k. Uh, and that sounds like a really good idea to people um, where you're paying yourself back instead of paying a bank back, if you, know, if you need to borrow to pay for college. But it actually doesn't work great for most people. Uh, with the 401k loans, the rules are you can only have one loan outstanding at a time. So that means you have to borrow enough all up front to cover all four years of college. And then 401k loans generally have a five-year payback time. So you're paying for four years' worth of college costs in five years. You're just stretching out college payments over one extra year. So you're really not actually saving yourself much in terms of your monthly cash flow and as opposed to just paying the four years of bills as they come up. You know, if you can pay for college in five years, you could probably stretch your budget a, a tiny bit and pay for it in four uh, without having to touch your 401k at all. Um, there's also, um, it's a little kind of hard to wrap your brain around, but there are some nasty tax consequences to it when you end up paying yourself back a 401k loan. Um, you actually end up paying taxes on that same money twice. It's kind of you pay taxes on your money. It's after-tax money that you're paying yourself back into your 401k. And then when you make a withdrawal in retirement, you pay taxes on the same money again. It's actually one of the very few circumstances in the tax code where you actually get taxed on the same money twice. So overall, just not a good idea. I think it doesn't help people very much, and it actually hurts you a bit in terms of taxes. Gotcha. Okay. So we only have a couple more minutes, but let's talk about mistakes you can make when you pay the college bill with student loans. What are the big ones that people make? One big one is overborrowing. That's probably not a shocker. Um, some people overborrow because they've just chosen a school that they simply can't afford. But even if you're, you can basically afford the this, this school that you're paying for, um, some people borrow too much money um, just because they're of not paying much attention. Um, when this college awards you a loan on a financial aid package, they're awarding you a maximum loan amount. And included in that loan amount are estimates of what you would need to pay for books, uh, transportation, all sorts of personal expenses. It's not what you actually need to pay to the college. Um, so some people just kind of automatically just borrow whatever the school tells them they can borrow. And they're probably borrowing more than what they need. Maybe you need to borrow enough to pay the tuition bill. But think about maybe can you afford to pay for books and transportation out of pocket maybe. Uh, That will certainly save you a lot of money in the long run because you're not paying interest uh, on all um, that kind of little miscellaneous stuff that you can probably afford to pay out of pocket. A student can work, uh, you know, a little summer job and afford to pay for that stuff. So that's one thing I'd keep an eye out for. You know, don't just passively borrow whatever the school tells you you can. Really think about how much you need to borrow. 
don't borrow more than, than what's actually required to pay the bill. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, we have one more minute. You Borrowing too much, clearly a problem. Can you borrow too little? Is that possible? I think in some circumstances it is. Um, one thing that people sometimes do is they don't budget their resources out over four years. So sometimes they might have, you know, $20,000 in the bank and the freshman year bill is going to cost $20,000. They'll just, you know, pay everything they have to cover their freshman year bill, worry about the last three years later, and end up having to borrow a lot of high interest debt in the final three years. It might have been better in that situation for the student to borrow a little bit of money all along. The government student loans have a pretty low interest rate, but they have yearly caps, um, you know, between kind of five and seven thousand dollars that ballpark per year. So maybe have your kid borrow a five thousand dollar loan at a low interest rate for their first year. Hold a little bit of your own money back and use that in future years because if you don't take that $5,000 for freshman year in the low interest loan, you can't add it onto the senior year loan amount. Um, so, you know, if you're going to have to borrow significantly at some point, it's probably good for your child to take advantage of the government student loans on a yearly basis as they come up and save a little bit of your money for later on so you don't have to borrow very high interest private loan debt or parent loan debt later on in the process. Perfect. Thank you so much, Shannon, and thanks to Elise. Uh, Both of my guests were wonderful this week. Um, Next week, if you or your student has ever had a disciplinary issue that led to a suspension, an expulsion, or maybe even a visit to court, uh, my colleague Kenan Dick is going to join us, and we're going to talk through how to best address disciplinary disciplinary issues in the college process. Um, For those of you getting ready to apply for financial aid, college finance expert and college coach colleague Beth Feinberg-Keenan is going to walk us through understanding college's financial aid policies. And finally, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into demonstrated interest, what it means, how to tell if a college cares about it, and really, most importantly, how to demonstrate it. Um, For those of you who are wanting more information or want to read through all the stuff we shared about the Common App today and last week, please check out those series of blogs on getintocollege.com forward slash Common App. You can always access our um, archives. You can download the shows for free on iTunes. You can get to them 24-7 on the Voice America website. So you don't have to be here live. But if you want to be here live, we're here every week on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Hope to hear or see you or hope you're listening next week. And thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm